Well, hello, friends. Uh, my name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And how is it August already? Are you ready? I'm not sure if I'm ready for this, but here it is. So I know many of you are traveling, and if you're joining us online via our church online interactive platform or YouTube channel or our Telus Optic TV, I want to welcome you into this digital space together. And just to let you know, in September, we're going to continue to broadcast on YouTube and on TELUS TV, but we will not be staffing our interactive platform. And so I want to encourage you, if you're local, maybe swing by and join us in person at our Surrey, BC facility, or go and begin now to make that switch to another digital platform, either by setting a reminder on YouTube or tuning into channel 878 on TELUS every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Well, today, I am excited for us to conclude our study of the biblical book of Esther in the Old Testament, which we have titled Truth to Power. And we're going to talk very directly today about the dynamics of power. And the book of Esther is set in the ancient Middle Eastern Empire of Persia in the 5th century BCE. And it's account of how a young immigrant woman moves from obscurity to a position of great power as queen of the land and who at great personal cost to her and her family speaks a very difficult truth to power and ends up saving her people. And we've seen in our study over the past few weeks how Esther exercised great spiritual and personal boldness. After fasting and prayer, she made a daring approach to the king requesting that she and her people be saved. And we've seen how Haman, the villain in our story, after having his evil plot exposed, met the nasty fate he had destined for others and was killed by order of King Xerxes. But we've also seen how the problems and challenges of the ancient Jewish people are far from over. There is still, after all, an unjust law on the books that states that in just a few short months, all of the ancient Jewish people were to be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated, and their property given to their enemies and those who attacked them. So this made the Jews out to be targets and actually incentivized a potential genocide. So even though wicked Haman is out of the way, Esther and Mordecai still have a lot of work to do if they are going to save their people. So let's pick up the story in Esther chapter 3, and I'll be reading uh, through verse 12. Esther 8 verse 3 in the New Living Translation says this, Then Esther went again before the king, falling down at his feet, begging him with tears to stop the evil plot devised by Haman the Agagite against the Jews. And again the king held out his golden scepter to Esther. So she rose and stood before him. And Esther said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor with him, and if he thinks it's right, and if I am pleasing to him, let there be a decree that reverses the orders of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, who ordered the Jews throughout all of the king's provinces should be destroyed. For how can I endure to see my people and my family slaughtered and destroyed? Then King Xerxes said to Esther, Queen Esther, and Mordecai the Jew, I have given Esther the property of Haman, and he has been impaled on a pole because he tried to destroy the Jews. Now go ahead, send a message to the Jews in the king's name, telling them whatever you want, and seal it with the king's signet ring. But remember, whatever has already been written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring can never be revoked. So on June 25th, the king's secretaries were summoned and a decree was written exactly as Mordecai dictated. It was sent to the Jews and to the highest officers, governors, all the nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. 
and the decree was written in the scripts and languages of all of the people of the empire, including that of the Jews. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. And Mordecai sent the dispatches by swift messengers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king's service. The king's decree gave the Jews in every city authority to unite to defend their lives. They were allowed to kill, slaughter, and annihilate anyone of any nationality or province who might attack them or their children and wives and to take the property of their enemies. The day chosen for this event throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes was March 7th of the next year. So one thing to note right off the bat here is that Esther has to exercise yet another bold move. Remember, we talked about the ancient law that said you did not come into the king's presence uninvited upon penalty of death. And yet Esther, in her haste and her plan to save her people, not only does this once, but now she does it a second time. And yet again, a second time, the king's heart is moved and he admits her and permits her to make her request. And Esther here is a bit of a master strategist. She approaches with purpose and with clear intent. We know from reading the book of Daniel, for example, that the ancient Persians had a thing about not changing their laws. Laws were not able to be changed. So once an edict was in effect, in this case, the one about killing the Jews, you simply could not undo it. You had to write a new law that complemented or circumvented it in some way, but you couldn't just cancel it. And Mordecai and Esther understand how this works. And so they put together a plan that involves a new law coming into effect on the same day as the old one that allows the ancient Jewish people to exercise self-defense. But let's be clear on something here. This is not to be used as a proof text for ancient or modern geopolitical self-defense policy or even personal ethical decision-making around what constitutes self-defense. And the ancient Jewish response does not condone or mean that we need to condone violence against our enemies. Note, for example, the text takes great care to note several times the Jews did not take any plunder from the people who were their enemies or who attacked them. And the author includes all of this as a statement of historical fact, not a moral imperative or directive. And so we need to tread with caution when we're making any modern or personal application here or in circumstances like this. So chapter 9 goes on to detail how, on one fine spring day in 473 BCE, two laws now went into effect. On March 7th, the two degrees of the king were both live. And on that day, the enemies of the Jews who had opposed them and hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all of the king's provinces to attack anyone who tried to harm them. Chapter 9, verse 5. So the Jews went ahead on the appointed day, struck down their enemies with the sword. They killed and annihilated their enemies and did as they pleased with those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa itself, the Jews killed 500 men. They also killed the 10 sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not take any plunder. 
Chapter 9, verse 16. Meanwhile, the other Jews throughout the king's provinces had gathered together to defend their lives, and they gained relief from all of their enemies, killing 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not take any plunder, and this was done throughout the provinces on March 7th, and on March 8th they rested, celebrating their victory with a day of feasting and gladness. So we know from the history lesson in chapter 9, verses 20 to 30, that one of the objectives of the writer of the book of Esther is to help explain the origins of the Feast of Purim, which modern Jews still celebrate today, although it's become something that has more of a holiday overtone than a religious overtone to it. But Purim is the ancient word for the casting of lots, as in the dice that were cast by Haman in chapter 3, verse 7, to determine the date to schedule the demise of the Jews into his calendar. And so to celebrate that act of deliverance, still to this day, Jewish people will attend synagogue on the eve of the Feast of Purim, where the book of Esther will be read in its entirety, and they will respond with something called the Megillah. Blessed are you, my Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has wrought miracles for our forefathers in those days at that season. Blessed are you, my Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has kept us alive, sustained us, and brought us to this season. As Pastor Wally indicated last weekend, God's providential hand of deliverance is at work behind the scenes here. So this is not to be read as a passage that justifies violence or defense strategies of modern political nation states. It's a historical account of the preservation of the ancient Jewish people and the line of David, which brought redemption through Jesus into the world. And we're gonna celebrate that as we partake communion later on today. So if you're watching online and you need to pause the live stream now and go and get the elements, feel free to do that now. But there's another dimension here that I want us to unpack and understand as we round out the series. And that is that the last three chapters of the book have decidedly less to say about Esther and really more to say about Mordecai. If the book was written as a play, act one would be the rise of Esther, act two would be the rise and fall of Haman, but act three, the final act, would be the rise of Mordecai. To power. At the start of chapter 8, for example, the king gives the property of Haman to Esther, who then appoints Mordecai to be in charge of it. And then the king gives his signet ring to Mordecai, a symbol of great authority. So this is a big deal. And then Mordecai is invited into the new law planning process by King Xerxes to save the ancient Jewish people. Mordecai himself dictates the new law, and Mordecai sends the dispatches out. Look at chapter 8, verse 15. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing the royal robe of blue and white, the great crown of gold, an outer cloak of fine linen and purple, and the people of Susa celebrated the new decree. The Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored everywhere. In every province and city, wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had a great celebration, declared a public festival and holiday. And many of the people of the land became Jews themselves, for they feared what the Jews might do to them. Mordecai's star is on the rise here in a big way. He goes from being a worker in civil servant in the court of the king to being the second in command of the largest empire in the ancient world at that time. And it happens very quickly. I'm not sure I ever thought about how much power and authority Mordecai ends up with 
as we round out the book of Esther or how he uses it. But look with me at chapter nine, verse three. All of the nobles of the provinces, the highest officers, the governors, and the royal officials helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai. For Mordecai had been promoted in the king's palace and his fame spread throughout all the provinces as he became more and more powerful. Well, you've likely heard the phrase that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But the book of Esther and the author wants us to take note of something about the negative and positive power dynamics in play. Negatively, for example, with Haman, who used his power for evil purposes, but also positively, the positive power dynamics in play now here with Mordecai. Because the power dynamic at play is Mordecai is powerful, but he's not powerful like Haman or even Xerxes. See, Mordecai uses his power in a very specific way. Look with me at chapter 10, for example. The full greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, is recorded in the book of the kings and the history of the kings of Media and Persia. Mordecai the Jew became prime minister with great authority next to that of King Xerxes himself. He was very great among the Jews who held him in high esteem because he continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all of their descendants. Did you catch that? Yes, Mordecai has power, but he uses his power for the good of others and the welfare of others, not only himself or even those who are currently alive. He sees his role as one who speaks up for the welfare of those who will follow him in subsequent generations. This, friends, is the stewardship of personal and positional power for the common good. And unfortunately, wise stewardship of power is something that's all too rare in the ancient world, and I'd suggest it's equally rare in our world today. I'm indebted in my thinking on this topic to author and pastor Pete Schizero, who has a whole chapter in his book, uh, The Emotionally Healthy Leader on Power and the Stewardship of Power. And you and I, friends, both know that power can and does have a dark, shadowy side to it. Because then and now, people with positional power often take the privileges and the opportunities that this affords to them and they misuse and abuse it. Or people with personal power as a result of the gifts and talents God has given them can use that power to influence people in negative or abusive ways. People with sacred, or what Schizero calls God factor power, who have a sense of sacred weight to their authority, can wield that as speaking or acting for God when really sometimes they're behaving as fallen and broken human beings. And we see this when religious leaders exercise the God told me to tell you card, or who people who take on unhealthy and unhelpful domineering places in the lives of people under their leadership. And unfortunately, there are lots of examples of this in modern religious landscape and maybe even in your own personal history. We have people also with other types of power, with cultural power due to their ethnicity or age or gender, and sometimes they're unaware that they have disproportionate power when they walk into a room. And this can cause those who are minorities to feel like they're 
unheard or overlooked. People with relational power can have the trust earned and the information shared over years with them. And they can break trust and it can hurt very, very deeply. In fact, speaking personally, some of the most deep and lasting wounds that I bear in ministry and personally are as a direct result of power being stewarded improperly. Where there's been betrayal by friends or people with power who've used it against me with a different or competing vision, even where I've used power inappropriately. You might say, oh, hold on, Brad. I get that Mordecai had power. I get that some people have power, but I sure don't. I mean, it's not like I'm the prime minister or something. And one thing that we would do well to understand is that to a greater or lesser degree, everyone has influence, which means that everyone has power. You might be a kid and feel like the influence you have is very small, but you do still have the ability to influence things and people around you. Author Richard Gula puts it this way, quote, power is what enables us to make things happen or not. In this sense, everyone has power, but we do not all have it to the same degree. Power as influence is always relative to our resources. One of the most important self-examinations we can do is name our sources of power, for we are most at risk of ethical misconduct when we minimize or ignore our power, end quote. And this has led us to think quite carefully about power dynamics and the stewardship of power here at Jericho Ridge. We actually have a policy around stewardship of power for people who are serving on our leadership team, particularly elders. And here's how we define Christ-honoring, person-honoring style of leadership. While traditional leadership generally involves the accumulation and exercise of power by the one at the top of the pyramid, servant leadership is different. The servant leader, particularly those who are on the board, serve judiciously to share power toward the fulfillment of the mandate and goals of the team by putting the needs of others first and helping people perform and develop as highly as possible. With this approach, the process is as important as the task. And I want to take a moment to just honor our elders team as those who serve as a wonderful model by God's grace of this kind of leadership. They steward their influence and their power well, and for that I'm grateful, and I consider it a privilege to serve with them and under their leadership. And this is really, friends, what I see in Mordecai here. As we round out the book of Esther, he sees his power not as something to which he is entitled or something that just allows him to boss other people around. The text says that people held him in high esteem because he continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all their descendants. See, Mordecai sees power as a tool that needs careful and wise stewardship and is always to be used for the good of others. So let me ask you to pause for a moment and to interrogate your own life. First, you might want to Take some time to pause and think about what kind of power do you actually have? Identify it, name it, maybe write it down and think about what it means for you to steward that influence well. Maybe you're a boss or an employer or even a shift supervisor and all of that comes with its own kind of positional power. Let me ask you, are you stewarding it well? 
Or are you giving preferential shifts and treatment to your friends and withholding that from others? Are you a parent? You have a kind of power in your home to influence and set a tone for everything from engagement with media to church to financial generosity. Are you using that influence well this summer in a healthy way? Maybe you have a leadership role here at Jericho in some way, and you've told yourself, oh, I'm just a volunteer. What possible influence could I have? But often, authority and influence comes to us based on a life of service that's lived faithfully over time. And so I want to take time to honor and thank those who are and have faithfully invested into the lives of others here at Jericho. We have youth sponsors who are impacting and influencing our teens in a positive way. We have youth who've served at summer camp or who are serving in Kids at the Ridge. We have worship team members who help us focus on God. We have greeters who help set a warm tone for visitors, facility team members who set up chairs, and many, many, many more people who serve. And we are able, friends, to be an influence in this community and beyond because you are faithful to do your part to be a positive influence. And so I wanna thank those of you who serve for doing that. But in order to steward the power that God's given you well, you have to name it. And beyond that, you have to see it as a gift from God that God has given to you and to me and to us for a purpose. In Mordecai's case, his power and the respect that he garnered allows him to continue to work for the good of others around him and to speak up for the welfare of all of their descendants. Often in Christian community, I'll hear people with this false sense of humility saying, oh, little old me, I don't have any power at all. But one of the challenges of people not admitting that they have power is that they can easily begin to misuse or abuse it, and sometimes unintentionally. Maybe it's a comment made offhandedly, opportunities given to some or not others, throwing positional or financial weight around. All of these kinds of things happen in churches all of the time, and they happen because people refuse to accept or name the kinds or amount of power that they might have. Kathy Weingarten of the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School notes that, quote, people unaware of their power are the most dangerous people on earth, transmitting trauma from one generation to the next. And this applies to politics, parenting, government, and churches, end quote. So friends, one of my things that's on my heart for us here at Jericho in this season of regathering well is that we become a group of people with the emotional intelligence necessary to steward our power well. I love how Jesus talks about this in Mark chapter 10, verse 42, where he calls his followers together and he says, you know that the rulers of this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whomever wants to be a leader amongst you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. See, this, friends, is the principle of power dynamic in the kingdom. That those who have power are to use it to serve others, not to flaunt their authority over those under them. Those who are great or who have respect by virtue of their lived experience or sacrifice or contributions lay all of that down and say, I'm here at the table with all of you. I'm here to lead by being a servant, not 
by throwing my weight around. As we turn our hearts and our focus toward the Lord's table or communion, I want us to see this stewardship of power modeled powerfully for us in the life of Jesus. Writing about this in the book of Philippians chapter two, the author says, starting in verse five, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Friends, we serve and we follow a humble king who set aside his power, who laid his life down to demonstrate the powerful and unending love of God for you and for me. And so when we move to a place of communion and when we take this bread, when we drink this cup, this is a powerful statement of non-power. A statement that reminds us It's not by our own power that we receive or experience salvation. It is only in recognizing our powerless and our helplessness that we experience wholeness. It's only by saying, Lord, I need you that we experience grace and salvation. And it's in our heart, friend, that if you've not taken that step, that you would do that today. Just reach out and you can actually click that, I want to receive Jesus into my life button on the church online platform or email us at prayer at jerichoridge.com. We would love to help you take that step of obedience. We follow regularly in obedience to what Jesus left for us as a model. And so I invite you to wherever you are to take the bread, whatever you have. And this bread represents Christ's body, which was broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of his life laid down. And this is the cup. This represents Christ's blood, a willing offering shed so that you and I can know the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink together.